All right, good morning, everybody. Well, I decided to go with Hebrews, so if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, that's where we'll be this morning. Well, he did. And I don't know how far we'll get. Uh, We have communion today, so we want to make sure we leave enough time for that. We might get through two, we might not. Now... The book of Hebrews is written uh, to the Hebrews by a Hebrew uh, to encourage them not to be Hebrews anymore, basically. We're moving, we're switching to a new covenant. Um, it's, it's changed, it's grown, and um, it's not an addendum to Judaism, it's a, it's a replacement of that walk that they used to have in the Old Testament. So I thought it fitting we go to Hebrews since we just got done with Leviticus that showed us what that old covenant was. And... Uh, as on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Romans, which is very systematic, teaching us and taking us step by step to where we need to be. So does the book of Hebrews take the Jewish man or woman to that place of understanding that you can't blend them and you can't go back to it. It's a, it's a voided contract. The contract is no longer in force. Um, you, you can't use it. And so um, there is no going back to it. And so he's going to carefully take them through that here and Chapter 1, of course, is the first. It's, chapter 1 focuses on the deity of Jesus Christ, him being God, the divineness of Jesus. Um, I've been reading lately that some people say that our founding documents never really had the name God in it and all that. And I, I'm reading the Declaration of Independence. I'm saying, oh, it says right there, divine. It says divine. Well, that's not God. It's like, well, that's like saying you didn't say car, you said automobile. You know, it's, uh, it's the same thing. Um, and so when Paul, I, I believe is the writer is Paul, we don't know who the writer really is of Hebrews, takes his first chapter one to try to show them that Jesus is way different. Way different. He's not an angel. He's not a created being. He's God come in the flesh, but he has to get them there. He's not a great prophet. He's not one holy man of many holy men. He is truly God come in the flesh, and that has to be understood. That's the first step for anybody. Why would I believe on this Jesus? He's no different than fill in the gap. Any other holy man out there? Well, he's different because he's God come in the flesh, and he declared it. And so does the writer here. But that is the battle. That's the struggle. The Hebrews kept uh, moving towards Christianity. They would accept Christ, but then it was politically uh, uncomfortable for them obviously socially uncomfortable for them. Uh, They were considered the cult of the Jewish nation, these Christians, because they would hold services in the synagogues. And so, uh, you know, got got to make room for that that weirdo group as they're coming in. It got to be a a lot for them. And they had a tendency to fall back into it because it was just easier. It's just easier to look like everybody else. It's easier just to act or just just stay where where I grew up and not be changed and transformed and renewed. It's just easier. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them, no, 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 you you can't do this. You can't. And I'll give you some background scriptures as to what they were going through. In uh, um, Acts chapter 15, um, it's verses 1 and 2 there. After the gospel was preached, after people got saved and trusted in Christ for their salvation, this would happen. And certain men came down from Judea, 
and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles uh, and elders about this question. We can't let this go. The mission field is paralyzed at this point until we get this straightened out, and so we're going to stop what we're doing. We're all going back to Jerusalem. Let's get this hashed out now because you can't say that, Paul says, Barnabas says. You can't tell people to do that stuff. It's changed. Everything's different. And Paul knew. Paul understood. Paul had the, the intellect to understand that, but he also had the Holy Spirit. And these guys, well, I don't know. I don't know where they're at spiritually. But as Christians, <laughs> kind of, they thought their mission, their calling on God is to tell everybody else you need to be according to the law. And you can have that Jesus thing too. You can add that to it. So it was, a, it was a, a stapled on the back of their Bible kind of addendum. It's not the case. And Paul says, no, it absolutely replaces it. It absolutely takes the place of that old contract. That's why it's an old covenant versus a new covenant. That's why it's an Old Testament versus a New Testament. The Old Testament foreshadowed and pointed everybody to their need for a Savior, but then that Savior came, and that is no longer needed to point people. You have Him. He's here. And so that's what they were dealing with. In fact, when he wrote to the Galatians in chapter 3, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That was the struggle. Paul didn't and hated to see them fall back into those old habits. You attempted forever, your whole life, trying to become good enough to get into heaven by doing this, doing that. Whatever they asked you to do, you did because you thought maybe it's a scale, and if I do enough good, it'll outweigh the bad and that'll take away my sins before the eyes of God. But then Christ came and removed the scale completely and says, I've taken all of your sin upon my shoulders and have been crucified once for all. And that's the solution. Trust in me. Believe on that. You couldn't keep the Old Testament contract. I wrote a new one where I signed on both the dotted lines. I will not only be the enforcer of the contract, I'm also going to be the fulfiller of the contract. And I've done both. And now we simply believe on that for salvation. But as soon as they felt that grace, that freedom, that liberty, oh my goodness, I can't believe I don't have to worry about my eternity. Now I can just live for God. It's banked. I'm going to heaven. It's a foregone conclusion. It just hasn't happened yet. When I die, I'm in heaven. This is great. I can now just live freely for Christ. They fell back into it. And it broke Paul's heart to watch the Galatians fall back into that. Are you going to be made perfect in the flesh now, you can't. You can't add to what Christ has done on the cross. And so I believe that sparked this writing of Hebrews. Look, folks, you got to know. I think this is the message that Paul always wanted to preach to the entire nation of Israel. Please hear me. Please understand, he would say. I, the Gentiles get it. They come and they know the Lord and they're off and running. Then you guys come in and try to Judaize them and that's not the way it is. Look, Judaizers, just like I told the Jerusalem council, we, as Jews, had to be saved like they, as Gentiles. So, verse 1. God 
God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. I know there's a comma there, but that's the best place to break. Yet he used to talk to us by the prophets, but now he's talking to us by his very own Son. He's better than the prophets, simply put. He's not another prophet. He's not another holy man that God has sent. He is the Son of God. And these are the last days, which means there's going to be nobody else. These are the only people that are going to... He's the only one that's going to speak to us from now on. This is the solution. This is the answer. No, no other voices will be heard. There's not another prophet after Jesus. Jesus is the Son in these last days who has spoken to us. It's pretty important. It goes right along with Jesus' parable. When God turned over the vineyard to the workers and he kept sending his servants to go tell them, hey, I'm coming and I need my portion back. I need my... And they kept killing the servants that this guy would send, the owner of the vineyard. His servants kept dying. And it finally says, maybe if I send my own son, way different than a servant, making a clear distinction, Jesus was, between the prophets of old and his message and his relationship with the Father. I'm the son So in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of the glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels." as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. God has given him all things. God created all things by him. It's by his word that all things were created. He lets him know that. Everything that you stand on, everything that you see and look at and feel and experience, the writer of Hebrews would tell the Jews, is all made by him. He's been here and he's done all that. No other angel claims that. And God has given him this. A great inheritance, a more excellent. He's the expressed image of the person of God. When you look at him, you see the Father. And I think that's what he was getting at when he... Timothy, or, uh, uh, oh boy. What was that guy's name? One of them apostles. Uh, oh, my mind just went blank. I'm trying. Thomas. Um, you know, unless I put my hand into, his, or put my finger into his pierced hands and into his side, I will not believe. And, and, uh, and he saw him and he, he realized it. He didn't have to do those two things. He saw Jesus in this glorified state but not ascended and said, you, you are my God. He, he called it like it was. He understood that. Uh, he accepted it and uh, was so much higher than the angels, so much higher than the rabbi they thought they were following, truly understanding that he's God come in the flesh. Show us the Father, they said before he died. He says, have I been with you so long that you don't see me? I've been with you the whole time. He was the expressed image of the Father. Now, the writer here goes on in verse 5 to explain and to show from past scriptures that have been written, not just his opinion, but from the scriptures that they held dear, 
that this has always been the case, that there's always been a son, that there has always been this promise of the Messiah, and it would be his son. And he says this, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He's quoting out of Psalm 2, verse 7. He's never said that to an angel. He's only said that to Jesus. He goes on again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's never said that to any angels. He's better than the angels. He's above the angels. They already knew that angels were above the prophets, so he's taking care of the prophets. Then he moves on to the angels. He's way better than the angels. He's slowly but surely elevating their eyes. And that is a lot of our problem. Most of the time, as Christians, as we walk, our eyes don't go quite high enough. Jesus is a great guy. He's that big man upstairs. He's my buddy. He's my friend. And he sure is all those things. He's also King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's the creator of all. Our eyes just need to get a little bit higher. And that's all the writer's trying to do is to elevate them. Okay, he's not a prophet. Okay, well, maybe he's an angel. No, he's not an angel. Well, the only thing left is son. Bingo. You got it. See, the angels, and that's just one of those things you've got to pay attention to. Two things that will really help you point out or uh, spot false doctrine, false teaching, is they'll deny the Word of God. They don't believe that the Bible is the final authority. Um, even the Bible says, they say it's scriptures, all scriptures God breathed. Um, and I don't care what you write, you can write anything you want. I'll believe anything you say, provided it doesn't contradict the scriptures. I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about it. As long as your new writing that you say is God's word doesn't contradict but enforces God's scriptures, I don't care what you call it. But when it contradicts God's word, it goes. The Bible doesn't go. When your opinion or thought or policy goes against what God's Word says, then your policy goes. God's Word stands, because it's God-breathed, and God doesn't change. The other thing that you'll know false doctrine from is they'll deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They'll take away his divinity. They won't believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh. He's a little bit lower. He's a little bit less. There is an order in heaven. There's the Holy Spirit who points people to Jesus, then there's Jesus who points people to Father, but they're equal. The Trinity is equal. They only have positional situations where the Holy Spirit brings people to Christ, God the Spirit, God the Son, God the Father. But they're all equal. And so when they deny the deity of Jesus Christ and they say that he's actually Michael the Archangel, which is the folks down the street, they believe Jesus is just another name for Michael the Archangel, He's a created being. He's just an angel. Or the other group, far across town, believe that he's the half-brother of Satan. Well, Satan is Lucifer, the angel. That means Jesus is an angel. So they've, they've brought down the deity of Jesus Christ. They've taken away his divinity. They've taken away the fact that he's God. He's above those. Guard yourself against that. Those who try to knock out the scriptures or those who try to knock out Jesus being God in the flesh. That's very important. Very important. To which of the angels has he said, you are my son? None. To which of the angels has he said, I'll be your father and you'll be like me? You'll be like my son? No. No, you will be my son. Verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, which means he's already existed beforehand, he wasn't created at birth. He just showed up at birth. He commands, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. 
That gives him another position of authority, just another example. Jesus, when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, and Satan tried to get him to bow down and worship him, he says, no, you should only worship God. That was his solution. That was his answer. And he's right. And the angels being told and commanded to worship Jesus is accurate because Jesus is God. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That's pretty clear. If the Father calls him God, I don't know what we're arguing about. That little bit there at the end, though, because I like to focus on that first part of verse 9, therefore, God, your God, the, the next part's really important for us to understand. He's anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Jesus was the gladdest man that ever lived. He was the most joyful person that ever lived. I think we get a, a funny picture of him from artist renditions of Jesus. You know, he's always solemn. And not always. I think they're doing better with it now, but still, it's not him. You know, they got him on, on children on his knees and things like that. And that's a good thing. I think there was a lot of that. I think Jesus was, like I said, covered with peanut butter and jelly. He loved kids. But he was the gladdest man that ever lived, and, and we represent him. And we're supposed to anyway. Sometimes we think if we have the most solemn gray face we've ever had, we'll be the most pious and religious person anybody's ever seen. And it doesn't reflect him very well. Because he wasn't like that. He was the gladdest man that's ever lived. He loved people. He loved them so much that he died on the cross for their sins. Now, he wasn't happy with people all the time. Don't misunderstand me. He'd call a serpent a serpent when he saw him. And his cousin John, the Baptist, would do it also. Right? You brood of vipers. Who told you to come out here and repent? I mean, he made him work for it, didn't he? Everybody else is like just getting down into the water, and these guys are over there watching them, going, I can't believe they're down there getting baptized by this guy. And, all that. and he looked at me, you brood of vipers. Who told you to repent? Either get down in the water or go home, was basically what he was getting at. Some of them did. Some of them did get in the water. Some of those Pharisees got saved. Some of the priests got saved. It was exciting to see, I imagine. And he's still doing that today. He's still reaching out to those that you didn't think would get reached out to. You know, What drew people was he was the gladdest man that ever lived. There was something about him. They couldn't get close enough to him. I mean, even John, whom, well, he doesn't use his name, but he says this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. They, to the point where he would lay back on Jesus, because you know, they were all reclining at the table, and he leaned back at the, on Jesus' shoulder, and he'd say, you know, is it I? Am, am I the one that's going to betray you kind of thing? He would lean back. He says, no, it's the one I dipped the bread in with. That's the one. Of course, they'd all dip their bread in there. It doesn't clarify it very much, but they weren't afraid to lean back and touch Jesus. They weren't afraid to throng him, and, and, and he was a very touchable, you know? He didn't, like, levitate when he walked. <laughs> he had dust on his feet. Um, I think that's just important for us to keep in mind as far as our walk with Jesus goes. Am I reflecting Jesus properly? Do I have that oil of gladness? 
Because it should be there. It should be natural. I mean, you can't force it. You can't say, I'm going to screw on my smile when I come to church. Because you don't always feel that way. But as I've been in the presence of Jesus, I, I should have that oil of gladness. As I've been in the presence of worshiping him, that should be coming out of me. It should be a natural glow. A lot like Moses, when he would come down off the mountain and has been in the presence of God, the Holy God, he'd come down glowing kind of thing. It should, it should be us. That joy. There should be something about us. People should look at us and go, you know, they're kind of different. Something about them's different. Let me tell you why. The writer goes on in verse 10, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. In other words, Jesus is the creator. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. In other words, you're everlasting. That's why he can say in Revelation, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I don't have a start and a finish. I'm everything. I'm all that. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? I love that. I love that the fact that it's all past tense, it's all been done at the cross. When Jesus died once for all at the cross 2,000 years ago, that was the end of it. He's done. The propitiation for our sins has been completed. That payment is, is done. It's just believing now. That's why he's sitting down. He's no longer working and striving and struggling. And No, that happened at the cross, and he's done now. He's seated. And that helps me. If Jesus is seated and he's not panicking, flailing his arms up in heaven, why am I down here? Oh God, what are we going to do? Oh, he's sitting. None of this surprises him. None of this is a worry to him. None of this is a concern. In fact, so much so that he writes it down. I want to tell you what it's going to look like in the last days so when it happens, you know that I know. And that these things are taking place because this is the end. This is how it works. But he's seated. He's seated until I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? The angels, he's saying. They are. We've got time. I'm going to go on. Therefore, because of everything I've said, the writer says, because of everything in chapter 1, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Don't drift away. That's what the struggle with the Galatians were. They were drifting away. The problem with drifting away is if you're not paying attention to some sort of mile marker or land mass, you don't realize you're drifting away. That was one of the things you would see as a lifeguard as you'd watch these guys get on the raft out in the ocean. Not a good idea. <laughs> and they'd fall asleep out there. And first of all, you'd say, I know they don't have enough sunscreen on. They're going to wake up with a crispy, crispy tan, you know. That's not my problem. My problem is their life. And you watch them, and they're asleep, and you can tell they're asleep because their arm's in the water, and it's just flopping up and down. And, of course, it would be relaxing, and I don't blame them, but pretty soon, okay, I can barely see them now. They just drift away. And to see these guys wake up, 
Because it's fine when you're 50, 60, 100 feet from shore, maybe even 100 yards from shore, it's okay. But to watch their expression, if you could see their body language, that's about all you could tell from these guys. And when they'd wake up clear out there, they'd grab that raft and they'd look. And once you see the landmass and how little it is and how far away it is, that's when the panic ensues. And of course, by then, it's almost too late. Usually they could get back in, but you see them just paddle, 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 paddle all the way back into the shore. That can happen to us spiritually. We fall asleep on the raft. We're comfortable. We're relaxed. And that's okay. I can understand it. We're kind of, it's important to keep an eye open on that landmass. So keep your eye on Jesus. Keep your eye on how you got saved, when you got saved, what took place, and who is the author and finisher of your faith. Keep your eye on that marker. Because you may wake up in your walk with Jesus and find yourself the most bigoted Pharisee anybody's ever seen. And you wonder, how in the world did I get here? How did I drift so far away from the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ? I was so excited when I got saved. The liberty that I had in Christ was so beautiful. My heart was light. My burden was lifted. And now I feel like I've got a bigger backpack on now as a Christian than I ever had when I was a sinner unsaved sinner. Be careful, the writer says. I hate to see you guys drift away. So it's a wake-up call. It's when you get the bullhorn out and you say, hey, Marine, (laughs) wake up. (laughs) They look up, they panic, start paddling for shore. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How can we neglect so great a salvation? Jesus in the garden said, if there was another way, let this cup pass from me. And then he went to the cross, which tells us the answer to that question or prayer from Jesus to his father was, there is no other way. You must come to the cross. You must go to the cross because there's no other way to save these people. And if that's the case, and Jesus spoke of it and confirmed it with signs and wonders, which means the heavens agreed with what Jesus was saying by the five loaves and two fish, the blind people seeing, and all these other lepers, uh, the woman with the issue of blood, the dead rising, all these things taking place, confirmed what Jesus said. How are we going to escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, what makes us think that we've got a better plan than the plan that God has laid out for us? It's very simple. If Jesus said this is the only way to get saved, God the Father confirmed everything Jesus just said by all the signs and wonders. Those of you who think that's not necessary, what plan do you have that's better than that? What are you going to do? How can you neglect it? Don't drift away. Don't go back. How do you think you're going to be made perfect in the flesh by going back to that old covenant which was replaced by Jesus who fulfilled it? For he has put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, what is, a, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Only God can come as man. 
Only God can step all the way down and fulfill it and live in the flesh like we live in the flesh and fulfill it perfectly without sin. For in that, he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now, we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. In other words, he did it for us. None of us will taste death because of him. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, of which reason he is not ashamed to, be, to call them brethren. That was one of their big arguments. Well, if he was the Messiah, how come he suffered? I mean, I thought he was supposed to be a king. I thought he was supposed to come in glory. I thought he was supposed to... Well, he does the second time, but the first time he comes to suffer. And the sufferings were our sufferings. He bore them for us. It was fitting for him to do these things. See, the prophets both prophesied about a suffering Messiah and a king Messiah, a saving Messiah, a a, a Messiah who is in all authority, but they didn't understand the suffering Messiah. How can that be? How can the Messiah die? All those things were confusing, and so they got rid of those scriptures. Very true, God breathed, but I don't understand them, so I throw them out. We have to be careful about that. Not understanding scripture is normal. Sometimes you run across that because it hasn't been explained yet. So when you run across those things, circle them, store them, and as you go through God's word, it gets explained The Bible interprets itself. You don't have to interpret it. He teaches what he means. He says what he means. He shares. He expounds on what he said and what he meant. We don't have to guess. Anyway, there's a big thing here in verse 11. Both he who sanctifies, that be Jesus, he's the sanctifier, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all of one. That's why he calls us brethren. Now, I don't think we understand this. What God has done for us positionally, what Jesus has done for us positionally, as if we're in Christ, that means we are, we're in the mix. We're in the group. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're in the Son. We have fellowship like never before with God the Father. We have fellowship like never before with the Holy Spirit. That's why he calls us brethren, not creatures or created things or those amoeba that we made on earth. No, we've been elevated in Christ. And he's not ashamed to call us brethren. I love that. I'd be ashamed to call me brethren because I know me. He's not. And saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. That's how he refers to us. It's a blessing that he calls us those things. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. He was truly flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For he indeed... For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. 
He didn't come to die for angels. He came to die for those who believed on him. That's what he means by the seed of Abraham, faith. He's a father of faith, those who believe. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He's later on going to describe him as a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. One of my favorite verses. Not a high priest who puts up with our weakness. Not a high priest who turns the other way and can't stand to look at our face. But he sympathizes with our weakness. And him being in the likeness of flesh understands the struggle that you go through, that I go through. And he's able then to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Not a high priest who grudgingly takes our lamb and snatches it out of our hands and walks in and offers it up and says, here's another person we've got to fix. It's not how he sees me. It's not how he sees you. He's merciful and he's faithful. I am the answer. I can fix your problem. I can take care of your sin and I am glad to do it. I'm looking forward to do it if you'll let me. I want to take care of your problems, your sin. I want them placed upon me. I want to be your savior. I want to help you out of where you are because I love you. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm not disappointed. I'm not dis- you're not a disdain to me. I think he enjoyed his mission. I don't think he liked the cross. I know he didn't. But I know he loved his mission. He was excited. That was in his prayer time. I've kept everybody that you've given me, God. I got them all still. And believe me, they were all, I mean, it was like herding cats with those guys, right? I got them all. You know, (laughs) Judas, I, I lost him, but he's never been mine. He's always been the son of perdition. That was the only one I lost, he said but he was never mine. He was with us, but he wasn't of us. He's excited about his mission. He's excited about you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He's done great things for you already, and now we live for him. And that's where we close today. Now we're going to have a time of communion. We're going to have that bread and that cup, that juice. And uh, we do little cups and little pieces of bread they didn't used to do that. It used to be a big loaf of bread that they whack a hunk off of and pass it around and then take the one cup and share the whole cup and all. We've changed that a little bit. But it still means the same thing. It still represents the same thing. On the night that he was betrayed, he took that, well, was jammed in there. He took that bread that they were all eating and he broke it. He says, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. That bread they were eating represented the Passover meal, that lamb. And he says, I'm changing this meal. It's no longer about the Passover, no longer remembering Egypt. You're going to remember what I'm going to do for you tomorrow. When I die on the cross tomorrow, when my body is broken for you tomorrow, you're going to eat this bread with a whole new meaning. Every time you have this Passover meal, it's going to be different. It's about me dying for you, not that lamb. And it's about your death being taken away and placed upon me. And now as often as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. He wants us to be reminded of this. That my broken body was given for you once for all. And that you're going to heaven based upon what I did at the cross, not based on how well you performed today. 
And so we take and eat this, and we remember what Jesus did for us, and we're thankful for it. Also, the cup, that same night, he took, he says, this is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. Not the old covenant. Not a list of rules and regulations. You don't have priests anymore. You've got one high priest, me. I'm it. And I'm going into the Holy of Holies, and I'm going to rip that veil from top to bottom that everybody can come in in time of need which we're going to read in Hebrews here in a minute. Well, not a minute, a few weeks. This new covenant is on me, Jesus said. As often as you drink this cup, remember that. That I am also the writer of this covenant, but I'm also the fulfiller of this covenant. And all you have to do is apply it. All you have to do is take it, receive it, believe it, and you'll be set free. And all those penalties, all those sins that were written against you, that you're going to have to pay for, I've paid for if you believe on me. That's the new covenant. And we have that now. And so this morning as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we're reminded of what Christ did for us. Such a blessing. And that we're going to heaven because of what he's done for us. God, um, you know, as we have this, let this also be a reminder that we don't ever fall back into that works mentality. Working for salvation. Accessorizing, putting earrings and, and uh, necklaces on our salvation that Jesus has given us freely. We can't, we can't make it look any better than that beautiful white robe of forgiveness that he's given us. It's best just to leave it alone. Now everything that we do that's good, it's for him. Because of him because of what he's done for us. This week when we get the opportunity to share his love with those around us, to share his word with those around us, to be like Christ, more joyous than anybody else around us, it's for him, to represent him because of what he's done. Lord, we thank you for this bread and this cup, what it represents, that you've given us this. Because we do, we fall into the same temptation the Galatians fall into, that it's somehow going to be better if we work harder at it or be... Our salvation will be like capital S salvation if we do more works. And there's nothing we can do to improve it. It's complete. It's perfect. It's holy. For us to touch it is to taint it. So God, we thank you for that, that we are saved, that we are born again, as you said we must be in chapter 3 of John. We've been filled with your Holy Spirit, and now we're in you. And nothing can separate us from you. Nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat. Ready? One, two, three. Lord, like these broken cups, we want to be broken vessels for you, God, that Christ might shine through us, that your son might be visible through all of our faults and failures, God, that people would want to come and say, if you can fix that broken vessel, you can fix any broken vessel, and that they might freely come to you. Lord, we thank you for you being approachable. Um, You love us. You're filled with joy and gladness over us. You enjoyed your mission. You're there to save us. You want the world. God, help us to be like that with those around us, Lord, that they might know you, Jesus, like we do.
We thank you for this morning. Bless these guys as they go today. In Jesus' name, amen.